the night. I am Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. Where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board. Thus, creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. So, Will, we have a slightly different show, at least from our end tonight, don't we? Yeah, live and in person, and my belly is full of cheeseburgers that your wife cooked up, and I'm uh, I'm a little bit sleepy thanks to uh, your wife's bourbon, and again aforementioned burgers and uh i'm ready for a good show and uh maybe sleeping on your couch <laughs> that is right we are in person for our first ever bat chat 50th episode Woo! yes it is episode 50 so we decided to read three stories that are big anniversary issues to tie in with our anniversary and our first night of hanging out Woo! we just fist pumped yes Yes, I know it's a Marvel property. Don't care. We are going to start off the night with Nightfall Part 2, Who Rules the Night? This is Detective Comics Volume 1, numbers 664 to 666, Showcase 93, numbers 7 to 8, and Batman Volume 1, numbers 498 to 500. The writers are Doug Mensch and Chuck Dixon. Pencils by Jim Aparo, Graham Nolan, Mike Manley, and Klaus Janssen. Inks by Rick Burchett, Scott Hanna, Dick Giordano, Mike Manley, and Klaus Janssen. Colors by Adrian Roy and Klaus Janssen. Letters by Richard Starkings and Ken Brusenak. And edited by Denny O'Neill, Scott Peterson, Neil Posner, Darren Vincenzo, and Jordan B. Gorfinkel. And if you want to believe it, that is not the longest list of creators you're going to get tonight. Oh boy. Cover dates are August to October of 1993. The bat has fallen, and Bane rules supreme. But all hope for Gotham is not lost. A new Batman, the former Azrael, will rise in Bruce Wayne's place. But how stable is he, really? And can he truly defeat the man who broke the bat? Uh, First off, just because we have to, problematic creator watch! Chuck Dixon remains a right-wing crank. What an asshole. And of course, he has to take his detour into shitting on unions. Oh, does he ever? Yeah, I, I wondered about that, because it's in both books, but I guess if one of them starts it in one, the other one's got to kind of carry it through. So, Ugh. yeah. So, this is the back half of Nightfall, obviously. And I'm kind of glad we broke it the way we did, because these are two very different stories. This feels like something different than that first volume. It is, even though uh, I think most instances, if you're going to go out and buy the big-ass collection of Nightfall, this is collected as one giant trade. I think DC has reprinted the Nightfall, uh, Nightfall Saga maybe five or six different ways. I had confusion when I was trying to get it in print about the wrong volume to complete my set. But yeah, where we stopped was such a natural conclusion. The, the breaking of the bat. And it is just about the halfway point in that big, thick uh, Nightfall collection. Um, maybe it's my pagination is like 634 and... Yeah, Bane opens this uh, the second half on three forty one, so it's not it's not a perfect split, but it's reasonably good enough. And 
this is so different, right? There is such a solid through line in the first half of Batman being pushed to his absolute exhaustion. Um, you know, last time around we read Vengeance of Bane. You know, we got his backstory. Here it is Bruce Wayne coming to terms with it, with what has happened. Azrael beginning his downfall, which I thought was alarmingly sudden. And various actors in and around Gotham kind of figuring out this new world. Uh, so yeah, your long answer for a short, simple question. It is a very different story, Matt. It, it opens, the first issue of this half is really the epilogue to part one. Where, I mean, it opens with this pretty shocking three pages of Bane in Robinson Square with Bruce over his head gives a big old speech and then just throws him here is your hero your protector take him and bury him you know for all of our problems with Chuck Dixon he can turn a phrase when he wants to look it takes a fascist creep to write a fascist creep that that is true and page four this spell the splash of Bruce landing on the ground and the people of Gotham surrounding him and the 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 looks the way Graham Nolan draws these the people there's you know a couple of people who are shocked there's a woman in tears there's one guy smoking with a smug little look on his face it's a great representation of a crying child it's all the, the possible reactions to the breaking of Batman and the Bruce looks broken. He looks like a rag doll just dropped on the ground. And the page before that, not only does Bane you know throw him, but you see Batman hitting all of these awnings, and it's just it's pathetic is the wrong word, but this is Batman at his lowest. He is absolutely defeated here. And the rest of this issue, more or less, wraps up some of the dangling threads from the earlier stuff. We see Joker and Scarecrow have their falling out. We see the the end of that ventriloquist plot where Sacco and Scarface just wind up shooting at each other. And then they are gone. Yes. No more. All of this is just taken away because... The rest of this very much focuses on Jean-Paul slipping away and Bane's attempts to consolidate power. One of the earliest threads that I really liked that it too ends pretty quickly is dealing with the immediate aftermath of Bruce's injury and this this urgent quest to get this uh, to get this medicine. You know, we talked Saturday uh, off air in person uh, about this and, and I called it like a fetch quest and that's what it is and again it, they don't really follow through with this but there was a sense of urgency right and it was much more dramatic than just killing Batman because death has no meaning left in comics maybe it had more uh, in 1993, but today, like, you know, DC could come out with a book tomorrow. You know, Chip Zdarsky could kill off Batman and would be like, all right, when's he coming back? Well, you know, when, when's, the, when's the great reset? But there's this, this sense that these consequences are real. 
if we don't get this medicine, Bruce may die. If we get the medicine, he's going to never walk again. So, I mean, the stakes here are really, really high for a comic book story. And I enjoyed that. And you have, since so much of it is from Tim and Alfred, who are both so emotionally invested in this, if this were a, the Justice League, not to say that the Justice League don't care about each other, but Tim is his son and Alfred is his father. These are people who are looking and they're deeply emotionally invested in this. And John Paul's there. But, <laughs> but the whole point here is that the, they're both feeling and Alfred is doing you know his best stiff upper lip British butler thing but Tim's a teenager and he's really We affected. are not going to hospital. Yes. That bit where you know, Tim's like, we need to bring him to the hospital, and Alfred's like, we can't. There's shades of what we just saw in that first Zdarsky issue with Bruce driving Tim after he's been shot at the hospital and thinking, I can't bring him to the hospital because it will reveal the secret. While I don't think that's necessarily intentional, it's a nice shade of that here. And from there we go into this weird little two-face aside, which the timeline is janky yeah and it, it was awkward to go just immediately into this flashback it felt very much like padding um you know we get this this little story uh that we we skipped over for for this episode this uh scarecrow and anarchy story that i just i just flipped through and it's like oh this these these layouts and this art looks pretty fun but it, it felt very much like we could have also skip this Two-Face story, too. Yeah. And they say that this was three weeks ago, and it's like, and that Two-Face is the last of the Arkham villains. Well, A, we know the Joker and Scarecrow are still out there, as of the Ventriloquist, because we just saw that. And that means I didn't feel like there was three weeks of Bruce in a coma, because he seems to wake right up with the medicine at the end of this. And there's no way Nightfall took place over the course of a month. Yeah. So I think there was just something wrong with the, the timeline there. And it, it was in Showcase 93. It felt like, hey, Nightfall, that, that's going to get people to buy. So let's just do a couple issues in Showcase. Who did we forget? Oh, we forgot Two-Face. Let's just do a couple issues of Two-Face. And it's not a bad Two-Face story. And it feels like really transitioning him away from the obsessed with two Two-Face and into the more district attorney, you know, fate and the flip of a coin Two-Face of the modern interpretation of the character. Yeah, um, there was one interesting note that I don't think we get in all of our Harvey stories. He's angry here, specifically at Batman, because there was a split before the acid. What did you think of that? That, and it's something I've got to remember, because that is drawing directly from Batman Annual 14, Eye of the Beholder, which was the post-crisis origin of Two-Face, where a lot of the stuff with Harvey's internal monologue in there, the, you know, good boys don't do bad things, was the abu his abusive father, which was, that was a concept introduced in that annual. I'm trying to remember, I don't remember if that, Bruce telling him, you know, you're getting close to crossing the line 
was directly from that annual or if that was something that Mensch worked in for those two issues. I think it makes a degree of sense if Harvey is slipping and the way he slips in that annual, he slips hard. And Long Halloween obviously takes a lot of that annual and works it into the the uber plot of Long Halloween. It's only Some of it is only hinted at. Harvey's father is only hinted at. And they transfer Maroney being Harvey's obsession to the Roman. But I'd have to go back, and I want to do that annual, but again, not easily available digitally. And it's like, why? This is one of, if not the greatest Two-Face story ever told. Arr, life finds a way, matey. <laughs> we, we be reading the books regardless, Arr. Two-Face, I think, after Joker, seems to be the most flexible in terms of what are the elements that you can take to build his story, how do you change them up, and again, I will stand by my assertion that Batman 89 has the most fascinating Two-Face to me, and one day we're going to get around to reading that, uh, and I think that's going to read much better in trade than its off-delayed installments but um it will be a little more batman 89 related talk tonight in our final story huh yeah i don't know where i come down on the idea that the the trifecta maybe had an uneasy relationship before it fractured i kind of like thinking of them as as friends and the three musketeers and then dent as a much more tragic figure but then also it's good to have him as a character with some depth that as we saw in 89, like, maybe his political ambitions pushed him a little too far. Maybe his abusive past pushed him a little too far. It's a hard question to answer, but I don't, I don't know if I precisely liked in this story that Dent just has this axe to grind because Batman was like, all right, we, we need some space here because you are, you are going too far. Definitely makes you want to go back and reread Eye of the Beholder. I think maybe 89, Eye of the Beholder, and another one will be our second Two-Face episode. Hey, it sounds good to me. Yeah. Now, and so after Bruce comes out of the coma at the end of that showcase, now we're in the the downward trajectory of this book. Not quality-wise, but, you know, everything is moving downhill at this point. You know, rolling faster as Jean-Paul gets the Batman costume, as Bruce begins his recovery and then has to leave to look for... His doctor, Dr. Shonda Consolving, who is kidnapped along with Jack Drake. And as Bane consolidates his hold over the unions, or tries to anyway. Ugh. Yeah, it's like, okay, why, why the unions? Why not gambling or prostitution or anything directly criminal? Why is it union busting? Or Bane, I guess, union busting to control the unions. Because that wouldn't be any fun for Chuck Dixon to write, man. <laughs> and you know, you're you are absolutely right. Jean Paul's descent is very fast. The first time he's out on the street, he is beating the shit out of punks for no real reason other than that's the way it's supposed to be. And that is the the overarching theme of the Night Trilogy. They. The creators, Denny O'Neill, who kind of conceived a lot of this and the others, the whole point of this was people were always saying, you know, well, why doesn't Batman kill? Why doesn't Batman kill? Why isn't he more like the Punisher? So they said they said internally, well, let's give him that. Let's <laughs> well, we'll make him a religious zealot and see how you like it. And guess what? 
Nobody did. <laughs> they all wanted Bruce Wayne back, and they got it. But there's a lot of bouncing off of Jean-Paul and Tim. Because Tim is trying to toe the line. And Jean-Paul is like, basically, screw you, kid. And that leaves us with kind of a weird note at the end, right? They spend half of this volume arguing each, with each other. Tim says, like, man, this is, this is a bad situation. Maybe I need to tell Bruce. Maybe we need to stop, you know, Jean-Paul. And then at the end, they're like uneasy friends he's like oh yeah i guess i guess you deserve to be batman now all right thanks kid like it's a it's a weird closer for all of the story you've told it's like the they the parts don't quite match up it, it felt like they needed to get to the end that they wanted to end it batman 500 they had built up too much story and so they just sort of needed to end it there's stuff in that last issue that feels very rushed that Bane is starting to, you know, get seriously addicted to the Venom. Or, I mean, not that he wasn't addicted before, but he's starting to react to it a lot more. And his, he needs his juice. And that's real quick. He goes from, in the previous year, 666, to wearing a smoking jacket and swilling cognac to, you know, a junkie who needs his fix, like tearing up buildings, like looking for his drugs. And it's like, you, I would have liked them to have his descent over the course of issues, not over the course of Batman 500. And also, if it could have more closely mirrored John Paul's. That would have made for a much fuller arc. Because there isn't a ton of Bane by comparison to the first half here. Everything you see him doing is just sort of plotting. He doesn't even really do much. He sends Bird, Trog, and Zombie out to do a bunch of stuff. But he himself, until 666, when Azrael shows up in his little penthouse apartment, is mostly just sitting in that penthouse apartment and calling people to him. Including a bunch of scenes with Catwoman that are just a setup for Catwoman number one. Well, he is living the life of, uh, of the Conqueror. He's accomplished what he set out to do until this imposter arrives. That is something I love. I love how he's just completely disregards Jean-Paul. He's the imposter, the pretender. When he calls him out at the end of the story, he gets one of those light-up billboards and programs it to say Batman in quotes. Sarcastic quotes. Yeah. Like, okay, I like that. I like that Bane is kind of a snarky dick when he wants to be. And I think he had every right to be because it's not like Asriel beat him fair and square. He's a cheating motherfucker. Yeah, and uh, the first time they met in some of those run-up to Nightfall issues we haven't read yet, he's nothing. Bane just, like, slaps him around with little to no effort. So it, it makes sense that he doesn't care. But the more he doesn't care, the more pissed off Jean-Paul gets. He's petulant. Fight me, coward! He's, oh, it's like, okay, I kind of do want to slap him. You want to slap Jean-Paul a lot over the course of the Night Trilogy, because he, he's pretty awful. Yeah, yeah, and then that's, that's the idea, right? I do like how the new costume is introduced in pieces. You know, we start with the, with the gauntlets, and then in 500 we get the, the entire 
you know, head to toe new look, and everybody in Gotham starts to take notice. Like this, this, this doesn't feel right. This feels off. And we slowly get some of the surrounding characters and where they are throughout. Nightwing shows up briefly. And again, this was a period where Nightwing and Oracle, who also only appears for a couple of pages, weren't members of Batman's supporting cast. Nightwing was a Titan, and Oracle was in Suicide Squad. This is probably right around the time Suicide Squad wrapped, but she wasn't in Birds of Prey, and she was not a regular fixture in the Bat titles. And Harold, Bruce's mute tech guy, and Ace the Bat Hound are hiding deeper in the cave because they don't want to be around Azrael. And understandably so. They live in that cave. They don't want to be anywhere near the crazy man. And then you have the the Bruce having to go off to find Chandra and Jack Drake. I'm curious to go back and reread the Night Quest, The Search, that is the back half of this. Because I'm fairly certain that Santa Prisca, them having to go to Santa Prisca, is just coincidence. Because it's not Bane who's behind that. It's just purely coincidence that, oh, they're going to Santa Prisca. So that it's clearly Bane. It's not Bane. We'll get to that when we eventually do our Bruce Wayne-centric stories episode, where we'll do the Night Quest, the search part. The final battle between Azrael and Bane is is it's fun. It's it's cool. I mean, it's it's a much more sweeping battle than the fight between Bruce and Bane in. Wayne Manor in the Batcave. That feels or felt very intimate. That was Bane wrecking Bruce's life in his home. Here, this is the fight for Gotham. So it's taking place on the roofs of the city, on an elevated train. And yeah, you're Jean Paul cheats. He, like, he cuts the venom cores and then he winds up kicking Bane right in the family jewels. It's like, wow, JP, that's. Going for that one, huh, big guy? And uh, and he's got the the shrieking, and it's like again, he he uses weapons that Bruce would never. But yeah, you're right. It's more it's more epic in scale, and I I almost wonder if it suffered a little bit of the Superman Doomsday of like, okay, just get to the point of the fight. We don't need to see all of these various scenes of destruction. But you know, it, it was solid. It accomplished, I think, what it aimed to. In no way does it feel like a definitive, like, end of Bane. He's just, it, he seems just momentarily defeated. As you might imagine, yes. <laughs> they were not going to get rid of Bane. No. And he won't show up a lot for some years. Like, they use Bane sparingly for quite a while, which not a bad thing we, we've always seen that with a lot of bat villains it's better to use them sparingly because otherwise you get you know the joker in every book every mm. month the best thing other than the almost definitive jim gordon story about the joker ongoing was that that's where the joker was we had 15 months plus where the Joker was nowhere else in the main DCU. He was just in that book. So you weren't getting an overexposed Joker. And Bane was a character that... There's the Vengeance of Bane 2. And then he shows up in the Legacy crossover. And then, you know, it's, it's a little miniseries here, a little there. Until he becomes 
he becomes a sort of recurring character in a run of Gotham Knights. But yeah, he he's used when Bane showed up. I was like, oh, this is a thing because there's Bane. When, people, when Bane's not on page, people should be asking, where's Bane? But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it also that sequence does show that even though Jean Paul doesn't kill Bane, the whole lead up to that, he's really slipping. Like Bane kills the conductor of this elevated train. Puts the lays on the gas, and when Jean Paul gets into the train and starts fighting him, he's not. Oh, I've got a whole train full of innocent people. I should stop the train. No, it's I should keep beating the shit out of Bane. If Tim didn't show up and sever the cars, that would have ended very poorly for everyone on that train. And you know, his standing order is not to go after Bane. Uh, that's the, Bruce is very clear on that. And it's not as if he does it out of any sense of you know trying to protect Gotham. It is, I want to assert myself. I want to push back against Bruce, and I want to show everybody in the city that I am the Batman now. Yeah, he's dangerously unbalanced, and will only grow more so. Wait until we get to Night Quest, and he starts hearing voices. Oh boy. Yeah. Hearing voices and seeing visions of St. Dumas. Jean-Paul is... Only gonna get crazier as this this progresses. I think we've we've hit the high points. Um, yeah, I think so. But just to, to to hammer home one more time, it was really sudden how this just did not work at all. And you have to wonder, like, did Bruce see any of this? Did he make the right decision? We've talked about the show before. American Dad, you know, uh, Roger uh, the Alien has an episode where he becomes a cop. Uh, he becomes a crooked cop, and he says, like, I, look, I just took to this like a duck takes to water. Like, of course I'm going to be a crooked cop. And Azrael almost has the same kind of reaction. It's uh, it's strange. We needed a little bit more development there. At least give Azbat one good day. One good day. Yeah, if he had been more in even the first half, just watching his descent, there, the beginnings, the seeds of that, but there's... What, two pages in the first half where he goes out to prove himself and beats up a bunch of guys who are robbing a store. It's like, you you could get a hint there that he was already unbalanced, but it's a couple pages. And here he goes from a little bit unbalanced to... Rawr. Yeah, it happens real quick. Well, with that uh, driving that point into the dirt, I think it's time to put Nightfall Part 2 on the big board! We are at episode 150, so we have 147 stories currently on the big board, and we'll be at 150 by the end of the night. Woo! Story number one is Batman Year One, from Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. At number 30 is No Law and a New Order, the first arc of No Man's Land. At number 60 is Fear for Sale, from Detective Comics, number 571. Coming in at 69, it's Detective Comics 833, 834, Trust. At 90 is Blades, Legend of the Dark Knight, number 32 to 34. At 120 is Demons, The Batman Adventures, annual number 2. And hey, down at the bottom, White Knight. Boo! (laughs) So, Nightfall Part 1 is at number 15. This is not there. 
No, no. Because you can only break the bat once. I mean, it's not... It's by no means bad. It's still... Top... Top half. So, we're, it's above 75. It's probably a fair amount above 75. I don't... Does it make the top 50? Is it better than Batman Reborn? The first Dick Grayson as Batman Morrison arc? Uh... Jeez, where is that? Uh, that is 50. That's... Oh, I have it down as Batman Robin 1 to 3. Yeah. Um, Batman Reborn, Batman and Robin 1 to 3. Yeah, yeah. That's Professor Pig. First Professor Pig, where he does his flash dance dance. <laughs> that's that's hard. Because uh, at 51, you got Blood Secrets, which is really good. Yeah. And at 49, you got Thrill Killer, which, uh, which I obviously always have had a soft, a soft spot for. But this is... Again, this this keeps getting harder and harder. I mean, even at 59, Doomsday Book is 59 now. I know. I'll say definitively, better than Killing Joke at 62. Yes. Yes, it is. I think this might be a little bit above... I'm not sure. I No, you know what? I think this is somewhere in between... 50 and 60. As much as I love Doomsday Book and Fear for Sale, specifically 59 and 60, they are both really well done trifles. And this is meaty. But what's interesting is while this ends the Bane story, all a lot of this is set up. This is setting up Jean-Paul's complete slide into madness over the course of Night Quest. So this, while it somewhat tells a complete story, if you know comics at all, you know this isn't a complete story. This is prologue. I feel like we've got to go above Long Halloween Special at 54. Yes. And right above that is Where Were You the Night Batman Was Killed? Which is a friggin' delight. But again, completely trifling. But it also has a lot of Two-Face in it. So the question is, does this work more with Two-Face, Two-Face the district attorney there? And hey, it's another one where Two-Face is prosecuting, a, prosecuting someone right on the stand. I think it... I, I think it goes above that. I think it goes above where were you the night Batman was killed. Because again, there's more heft to this. But I do not think it goes above the story above that. My beginning and my probable end. The Leslie Tompkins and Bruce Wayne talk about Bruce's life story. So I think this is our new 53. Sounds good to me. Alright. Okay. So our second story of the night is Resurrection Night. This is Detective Comics Volume 1, number 566, and Batman Volume 1, number 400. Get ready for some credits, folks, because this one is going to go on for a bit. The writer on both is Doug Mensch. Pencils on the Detective Comics issue is Gene Colan and inks by Bob Smith. Colors by Adrian Roy, letters by John Costanza, and edited by Len Wein. Batman 400 is also written by Mensch, 
with pencils by Steve Lytle, George Perez, Paris Collins, Bill Sienkiewicz, Art Adams, Tom Sutton, Steve Lyaloa, Joe Kubert, Ken Stacy, Rick Leonardi, Brian Boland, and John Byrne. Inks by Bruce D. Patterson, George Perez, Larry Malstead, Bill Sienkiewicz, Terry Austin, Ricardo Villagran, Steve Lyaloa, Joe Kubert, Ken Stacy, Carl Kiesel, Brian Boland, and John Byrne. Colors by Adrian Roy. Letters by John Costanza, Tom Orzakowski, and Andy Kubert, also edited by Len Wein. Cover date, September to October, 1986. A mysterious note is delivered to Batman with a cryptic message. Know your foes. And he will need to, when Arkham and the state pen are broken open, and all his enemies are set free on a very special night, with one mastermind pulling the strings. Ooh, that was another good summary. <laughs> Alright, so two notes before we get started. One, I want to hit this point for the listeners and so that I can keep track of it myself. In our anniversary episode, we're covering uh, landmark issues. In Nightfall, it was Batman 500. And in this story, it's Batman 400. And in my second note, this story also includes Detective Comics 566. And Matt has got that as a goddamn shirt tonight. I do. I have a real soft spot for that issue. Picture it. Maplewood, New Jersey. 1990. Ooh. I would have been nine years old. And as a nine-year-old with a five-year-old brother, I was left, you know, could not be left home alone during summer vacation, as was probably a good decision by my parents. So we were left with my grandparents and my uncle, who had a house in Maplewood. And, you know, we would walk around and, you know, all the little shops in the town. And one of them was this antique store that had... Let let me interrupt this story right now for for the listeners who haven't been to New Jersey. This is my first trip. And let me say for you all, there are little goddamn shops all over New Jersey. Every single downtown. Lousy with cute little shops, cute little ice cream places. Matt took us all to uh, to Princeton. I felt way out of my league, but it was a, a lovely trip. So yes, I can imagine delightful little stores here in New Jersey. At the back of this antique shop, the guy had like six long boxes of just unbagged and boarded comics. And I had just started collecting at the beginning of 1990, so I didn't have a lot of comics. But he had, you know, all these comics, and on the first page, in pencil, in the upper right-hand corner, was like the price of the comic, and it was always like, it was 50% off whatever was there, because I'm sure he bought them with those little prices penciled in. And the first day we discovered this, I went in there, and I saw this cover, which is Batman standing in a portrait gallery of his rogues gallery (laughs) and that was the comic I needed and it was a dollar and I plunked down my dollar and I walked home and it's basically a primer for Batman's Rogues Gallery in 1986 it is a a who's who secret files and it ends with to be continued in Batman 400 and I went back and there was Batman 400 but that the little penciled price Ten bucks. Whoa! Which, man, it was five bucks. Did not have the five bucks, so I went and I you know, did errands around my, or 
chores around my grandparents over the course of the next few days. And I eventually got the $5. And I went back and brought it up to the, the counter. And the little old man who ran the shop was like, that's a lot of money for this. I, I can't charge you that. I'll charge you $3. And he was a very nice little old man. He eventually, the store was robbed. And he eventually got a little more closed off, as you Aww. might imagine. But I know... He eventually retired to, like, Florida or something years later and sold the store. So he wound up okay, but it was sad to see in what that can do to a person. But I bought a lot of back issues from that store over the course of the next, like, year or so. Parts, All of those uh, Barr and Davis books, except for, five, except for Doomsday Book, which I had. That was the first wall book I ever bought. Granted, by wall book, it was, like, Again, like 10 bucks, but still, it was worth it as a wall book. Batman and Sherlock Holmes. But moving away from my personal history with these, and and by the way, yes, I I saw this shirt at like a Target and was like, oh, I need to own that. (laughs) I need to own that. So the first part of this 566, I included here because it's never going to be able to stand on its own as an issue, and it's really just the prologue to 400. It's Batman and... Jason have received that, you know, the know your foes note, and every couple of pages is they read a computer file on one of the villains, and then they discuss that villain and where they are currently. You know, you get all your your standard bat rogues are pretty much mentioned there. A couple that were peculiar to that time, Nocturna and the Night Stalker, who were a big deal during that mid-80s period where Nocturna was pursuing Bruce Wayne and tried to adopt Jason Todd to force him to interact with her. But other than that, it's all pretty much the guys you'd expect. It's Joker, Two-Face, Penguin, Riddler, Raish, Mad Hatter, Scarecrow. It's, there's very few surprises in there. It reads very much like that Huntress story that we did ages and ages ago. Yes. Yes. The, the first appearance of the Huntress. Yeah, this is exactly that. It's like, hey, this is a bunch of exposition. Let's get you all set for when we start the real story. And there's a lot of real story because Batman 500 for... Batman 400, excuse me. Batman 500 is a big book too. But Batman 400 is a chonky boy. And has is divided into chapters, and each chapter is by one of those artists that I read off in the synopsis. Oh, and while we're in there, uh, frankly, for that many creators, the fact that we've only got one problematic creator in there, not a bad bad ratio. Just John Byrne, who's an asshole, and he only drew one page. He drew the splash page that opened five hundred four. I keep saying five hundred four hundred. But other than that, I, I don't think there's anybody in there who jumps out at me as particularly problematic. And you got guys like George Perez and Joe Kubert, who are supposed to be great. I mean, I never met Perez, but Joe Kubert, when I met him, when he did a signing at the shop I used to work at, was, you know, a lovely little old man at that point. I kind of proposed coming to Jersey uh, to my wife for our honeymoon, and uh, she said she wanted to do one thing while she was up here, and that was go to... Kevin Smith's Secret Stash. And lo and behold, we went there. And today, I bought a packaged John Byrne miniseries. Oh, dear. <laughs> what book? 
Uh, Star Trek Crew. Ah, okay. Uh, it's uh, it's one of the IDW Trek books that's uh, not available digitally. And uh, apparently it's Pike's Enterprise, and uh, we'll see what it's all about. But yeah, I know he's a scumbag. Yeah. Alas. So when we get to Batman 400, this is the last major pre-crisis Batman story. This kind of ties up that era of Batman stories. Some of the detectives, I think, through the end of that Bar Davis run, so through my beginning and my probable end are still somewhat in the pre-crisis continuity, but even then it's sort of jangly. But this is sort of there to be like, hey, you know, all those things that we've been building up, all these supporting characters and everything, yeah, they're about to go away. Because 401 is a tie-in to the Legends crossover. So it's clearly in the present of the DC Universe. It's clearly in the post-crisis continuity at that while this is clearly tying up or dealing with or talking to all of the things that have been going on in the Bat titles for years. This is a stray thought, but as we are talking anniversary issues and milestones, you think we're going to get a legacy renumbering of Batman? Somebody at DC has got to be keeping track of this. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Batman, we've got to be approaching 900 at this point, if not a little bit over. So they might wait for 1,000. They might wait another few years because Batman 800, what would have been Batman 800, was, I believe, during the King run. That was... There was a variant they did for what Batman 800 would have been, but it is not telling me what the actual numbered issue was. That... Come on, you gotta give me that data somewhere online. Ah, Batman 35. So that was 35 of the... Was it the King Run or was it the Snyder Run? I think it would have been, had to be the King Run. And Will has once again ground the show to a halt. Ah, no, it is definitely... It's, it's during the King Run. So Batman 800 was issue 35 of that run. So we've, we've been 90 issues since then, because we just did 125, 126 drops tomorrow. So actually, middle of next year would be 900, because we're 10 issues away from what would be 900. So we might see a renumbering, legacy renumbering there, or they might just make a big deal of it. But we'll There's see. money to be made. There is, and especially since... Detective got its legacy numbering. Wonder Woman and Flash did. Right now they're in action. Right now there isn't the regular Superman title since Clark is off-world. It's the John Kent book. But Batman seems ripe for a legacy renumbering when you hit Come 900. On. This book, and we'll see this in both this and the next book, some aspects of it, but this one really is a proto-Nightfall. Somebody breaks open Arkham and the Gotham State Prison, Blackgate not having been established as the name of the prison at this point. The State Penitentiary. Yep. And all the villains are set free. And as opposed to Nightfall, though, where Bane's like, yeah, just chaos. I just want to wear him down. This is very much a, you know, 
Machiavellian scheme. This is someone who plans to use the villains for his own sinister designs. Guess what? It's Rachel Ghoul. <laughs> but I mean, and really, who else would it be? Like, uh, Raish is the only guy uh, who's going to try to organize all the villains. The only guy who all of the villains would conceivably listen to. And he's the only guy who would have a plan where this would make sense. Like, he, he wants to, one, destroy the bat. Uh, and two, destroy all of the villains. And then he he gets to take control. Like, that's that's the scheme here. And I I like that Mensch does absolutely play one thing particularly right. When all these villains are gathered, like, well, we're all supposed to go here and meet the guy behind this. Like, half to two-thirds of them are like, fuck no. I'm free. I'm going to go out there and do my crime thing. I want some crank. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that, you know, of the villains who sticks, one of them is the Joker. You'd think the Joker would be all about the chaos, but it does in some way make sense. Like, no, if somebody's willing to do this, I want to know who did that. They could be my new best friend. All right, I need to kill them. Could be one or the other. It's funnier if I know. Yeah. Uh, and then Raish actually has the lines like, oh, it's more of you showed up than I thought. Yeah. And we get Raish sending the villains out to kidnap various members of Bruce's inner circle. Many of whom are still, to this day, members of Bruce's inner circle. Harvey Bullock, Alfred. We don't see Vicki Vale too much, but Vicki Vale. Julia Pennyworth, who is a very different character pre-crisis than she is post-crisis. In pre-crisis, she was, oh, guess what? A reporter, because everybody needs a reporter. She was not the kick-ass spy of post-Flashpoint pre-Rebirth when she was introduced. And Bullock here is an interesting choice because he doesn't immediately scream Batman ally. I mean, more often than not, he's kind of a Batman antagonist. But, you know, Bruce is not going to just let somebody just twist, right? He's, you know, so I guess if you're not going to kidnap uh, Gordon... And uh, Montoya is absolutely not even a character at this point. <laughs> uh, so if uh, somebody else is going to be a cop, oh, and then um, ah uh, shit, what's the, what's the other police officer who's a character at this point? At this point, there's no. It's just Gordon and Bullock. Kitch doesn't get introduced. Kitch, yeah, he's introduced a little bit down the line. He's uh, Alan Grant and Norm Rayfogle. Yeah, so he's still about a couple years down the line because he would have been introduced in probably the 580s of Detective or at 566 because they take over in the 580s. So yeah, there isn't even Kitsch yet. It's really just Gordon and Bullock. And Gordon, of course, winds up on the wrong side of the Joker because <laughs> poor Jim Gordon's fate. Bad shit's going to happen. Joker's going to take an interest in poor Jim. And Bruce, throughout this, is melancholy. Not necessarily but he's got this sort of sense of ennui that this is happening on the anniversary of his first night as Batman and Alfred you know is talking to Jason at one point and Jason's like saying you know he's confused why Bruce is so sour and Alfred says that he thinks Bruce 
sort of sees all these villains who are released. These are all failures. And Jason's like, you know, but wait, they're all arrested. It's like, yes, but they all need to be arrested over and over again. There have been so few who have been redeemed. At this point, it's pretty much just Catwoman, who is at this point an ally. And that will go away pretty quickly with Miller. But at this point, Selena was a regular member of the Batcast. Like, she and Bruce were dating and had recently, you know, sort of parted ways. But this was the, again, the last story, or the leads into a Bar Davis story that is sort of the last story, where they're really in any sort of relationship or interaction for a long time. Because that Catwoman, I mean, we saw in Nightfall, when Selina shows up there, she barely knows Bruce Wayne. Like she says something to him about, you know, we met at a charity gala once. Like they, there was no real relationship post-crisis between the two of them for years. But instead, now we get her here getting involved and Talia getting involved on Bruce's, you know, Bruce's team. So you had multiple Batman love interests with those two, Vicki Vale... I can never remember if Julia had was introduced as a love interest or not, but seems like that would get weird. It yeah, it kind of would. But you know, and I mean, this becomes you know a nightfall in miniature. Like the villains kidnap these you know people that are close to Batman, and Batman has to make his way through the gauntlet. And eventually, Ray shows up in the Batcave, and he's like, "Yes, detective, I will aid you if you join me." And he's like, "No." He's pretty matter-of-fact about it, right? You know, he's like, I'm not, no, how many times can you do this? It's not gonna happen. And in the end, after he faces down all the villains, he faces down Raish. There's a big old fight. I do like there's a bit, again, foreshadowing something else where they f- destroy Raish's base. Like, they set off a bomb. Like, oh, this is above a fault line. Cataclysm. It's all there. This one is really worth discussing also in some ways. We'll, we'll discuss more story. But the art here. I mean, you, you all heard me read that, that list of creators. And I mean, holy crap. Any single comic that has three to f- six or seven pages by George Perez, Bill Sienkiewicz, Art Adams, Joe Kubert, and Brian Boland in one book... That, outside of the original black and white, I do not think we have any one book slash story that has more incredible artists in it. I thought for a second that Klaus Janssen was also involved, but no. That might be the next story? That was the previous. Ah, okay. Yeah, he drew the two-face. Ah, that's right. Uh, Pencils, inks, and colors. See, lots and lots and lots of artists tonight. Yeah. But yeah, I think sometimes when you get these milestone issues and you bring in all these artists to do, you know, four or five or six pages, it can be jarring. But most of them stayed within that same kind of feel. The coloring was, was all consistent. And it never broke from the narrative. You always got... You know, you could tell when they got to a chapter page and you'd have a new team on it. 
and everything would be maybe a little, a slightly different, but it never it never broke you out of the narrative. Except for Sienkiewicz. Well, not breaking <laughs> you out of the narrative, but looking different. I mean, he's Bill Sienkiewicz. He can't look like anybody else no. other than Bill Sienkiewicz, at least after the point when he becomes Bill Sienkiewicz. I mean, his early Moon Knight and New Mutants is a little more house style, but by this point, he's Bill Sienkiewicz. It's going to be crazy. But it works, because that's also this removed little intimate chapter of Bruce and Raish in the Batcave. It's separate, and it's it works in Sienkiewicz's trippy sort of style, this game of verbal cat and mouse between Batman and Rachel Ghoul. that if it didn't have an artist who was like, I'm going to do something crazy with this, it could look a little like, oh, they're having a conversation. This is Bendis working with somebody, and oh, it's just two characters oh. sitting there. Oh, you had to go off and mention Bendis. But no, this is Bill Sienkiewicz making this kind of operatic. Yeah. Stray thought here, and we've already had a conversation about this, two notes about the foreword to this book. Stephen King writes a foreword for this. You know, cover date of October 1986. It is striking to think how long that man has been a pop culture figure. This issue could easily come out today, and he might write the same letter. So that that's one idea, like just the staying power of Stephen King as a cultural figure. The second, he complains in the letter that Batman 66 is too light, too campy, too silly. And my response, he sings the praises of Dark Knight Returns uh, and my response I'm like dude this story is a lot like the plot of 66 the movie man I mean Joker has like a, he's got a helicopter and he puts bars around GCPD and this story's got some sillier elements here Stephen so I don't know maybe next time see a script where you write a forward for something. I know this definitely is a wild story. This is, it's big, and you know, you've got Ivy vamping it up as a femme fatale. You have Riddler being all Riddlery. You have Croc, who at this point is still in his, you know, mobster phase, because that's what Croc was when he was introduced. He was a mobster with a skin condition, and that's what he is here. And he just wants to break the bat because Batman screwed him over. You have crazy super science with the Lazarus pits. I do like the bits with the belly of the whale bar where the villains meet and I like when Batman comes back and he just breaks every glass in the bar and the guy's like, well thanks for leaving me one glass and Batman just knocks it over. And the guy, yeah, the guy is you know, drug pusher and willing to rent his bar out to super criminals but no, he's got to make a living. <laughs> I'll be back. I mean, in the end, you get what could be, especially if this is the you know end of that previous Earth One, the final Batman Rachel Ghoul fight. In the end, Rache again, as with our recent bonus episode on Batman Beyond, dies because of his obsession with immortality and power. He dunks himself in the Lazarus pit while alive to see if he can become more powerful. And it's like, 
Yeah, it does, but it's also killing you. And again, getting Brian Boland to do that final sequence, it's... Whatever else we say about Killing Joke, it's pretty. And this is, is pretty. Raish looks deranged in these pages. Yes. There is the sense that this is something more sinister, a little less human. And we get, you know, a final couple of pages of Bruce kind of rededicating himself to the mission. Thinking about, you know, all the villains who are still out there. And him just, hello again, beware forever. It's certainly a dramatic ending. And, he, you know, in the cave and a shaft of light and the bats, it's... If it's the end of an era, it's a good way for them to end the era. Beware forever. A beginning and an end. Yep. I think we're good. I'm certainly good. So that means it's time to put Detective Comics 566 Batman 400 Resurrection Night on the big board! Do we think this goes higher than Nightfall Part 2? As always, we have to take these things into account. And you put in 566, as stunning as that shirt is, as wonderful as that cover is, as blessed as that memory is, there is not anything to 566. No, there isn't. But there's so much to 400. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And 566, well, it's pretty. Gene Colon art. That's true. I'm a big fan of Gene Colon. Looking forward to us doing some, you know, issues where Gene Colon gets to do his Gene Colon thing versus just drawing a whole bunch of pinups. I mean, I... If this is higher than Nightfall Part 2, it's not a ton higher than Nightfall Part 2. I could see it being higher in that it was maybe more important. But I, I think the quality is is about the same. So, I mean, we're, we're going to be around the same area. 50s, 60s. I mean, I could... I could maybe go a little bit higher on this. I mean, the lower 40s, we've got Little Gotham at 48, Bloodstorm 46, Birth of the Demon at 45. So there's another Rachel Ghoul story. What about, what do we think in relation to Birth of the Demon? I think Birth of the Demon, I mean, the Nombre Fogel art painted Nombre Fogel art, or mm. watercolor or something. And Denny O'Neill finding a way to tell. The origin of a character that could have very easily been... We didn't need to know the origin of this character. Nobody needed Hannibal Rising. But this story worked. But you do need Manhunter. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. But this story works. That, or that story works. So I feel like I would... Alright. Opening bid, let's say. 48. Above Lil Gotham. Above Little Gotham. Little Gotham's a ton of fun, but other than a bunch of inside jokes and some nice little heartfelt moments, there's not a ton of meat to that story. Granted, as you said, this one is kind of wacky, but there is Bruce sort of reckoning with, has he really done anything as Batman? There is a, a nice interaction he has with Talia, towards the latter part of this too 
the villains have done their thing. They've taken Alfred, and he's just sort of like, I'm done. I've done nothing. And Natalia showing up and being willing to betray Raish, to stand by his side, reminds him that people can change. So there is something there about Bruce's quest. And above that is New World Order, the first four issues of JLA, which has that great sequence that just shows you what Batman can do with just a little bit of brain power and preparation. Not even a ton of tech. You just leave him with a few minutes to prepare. It's like, oh yeah, you guys are fucked. Uh, I like this as a new 48. Okay. New 48 it is. Resurrection Nights. And our final story of the night is Blind Justice. This is Detective Comics Volume 1, numbers 598 to 600. The writer is Sam Hamm, pencils by Dennis Cowan, inks by Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin, colors by Adrian Roy, who colored all three of our stories tonight, letters by Todd Klein, edited by Denny O'Neill and Dan Raspler. Cover dates are March to May of 1989. Bruce Wayne is troubled by nightmares of Batman stalking him. A mysterious new foe called Bone Crusher is committing crimes across Gotham. A young woman is looking for her long-lost brother. And something is rotten in Wayne Tech. Batman must find the linked solution to all of these disparate threads while wrestling with pain, both physical and emotional. I mentioned 89 before. Uh, Sam Hamm is the writer of the Batman 89 miniseries and the screenwriter on the film. So this came out earlier in the year that we would get Batman 89. This is obviously some sort of synergy. This is also three comics at 140 pages between the three of them. You got two giants in 598 and 600, and then 599, which is a standard size comic. Very strange. Very strange. Very odd choice. And I sat back and I wondered if this had that same vibe that Death in the Family did where it was like okay the first two parts of that are obviously four comics that they just package two of them together in each issue but I don't think so because there wasn't there weren't the recaps throughout the different chapters were not of the same length so I think this was just written in a strange choice of how it was written yeah um was this Ham's first comic as far as I know, yes. So it might have been... There is a lot of the screenwriter to this. This absolutely feels like a screenplay in a bunch of places. Some of the cutaways, some of the, 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 the way it's quote-unquote shot. And that might be Cowan, because Cowan does have a style that has a cinematic-y sort of vibe to it. But... Also, it does stuff that film can't. There's a lot of narration. There's a lot of internal monologue in caption boxes using different fonts to indicate different characters. And, pardon, they're not fonts. At this point, this is all hand lettering. So, different styles, I suppose. And you've got a corpse in a tub. You do. There's a lot in this story. There's a lot of... I mean, just from the way... Did the synopsis? There's all these different plot threads because you've got Bruce having these nightmares of Batman. You have Jeannie Bowen and her quest for her brother. 
you have Reardon and the the cartel and what's going on in Wayne Tech. You have Bone Crusher, and they all do logically come together in the end. But starting at the beginning of this story, it seems like there's a lot of different things going on. You have a Stephen Hawking analog who's involved in working at Wayne Tech. It's an ambitious story. It is, and it delves into science fiction. I don't guess there was an attempt to really make Bone Crusher a new villain, but it's a lot of new concepts there with the machinations behind his identity aside, he's still got all of this other fancy technology, these sound waves and, and everything. So there's, there's a lot going on here. And it, it is very much science fiction, underlining the science. They really do try to explain how this stuff would be kind of viable. This isn't, and it's a cyborg man. He, he, he's part robot. Yeah, that's how that works. It's like, no, no, they, they try to explain ultrasonics and subsonics and the, not so much the brain transfer technology, but <laughs> some of this stuff is... There's is, only so much you can do, Matt. Yes, that is true. And, and boy, Bone Crusher has a real proto-Bane look to him, doesn't he? Ah, he does. He's giant. He's got uh, different tubes coming out from him. I, I'm sorry, I can't get any farther in this until I get this out. Bone Crusher is ready! Uh, okay. <laughs> I feel better now. I feel better. And and you're kind of wondering, like, why why is his face hidden the whole time? Like, why does he have a sheet over his head? And then you realize, oh, oh, it's a, it's a different guy. This was supposed to be someone that the government who is secretly funding this, this black book government organization the cartel if they want to have this you know super soldier it's like they don't want to realize it's like 12 super soldiers it's just the one dude and this i think by necessity would have to also involve some kind of venom serum seems like it because he's jacked in a way that is not the way a normal person would be jacked, no matter how much they worked out. No, you would have to have all of the all of the the bone crushers to be as jacked. And what's fascinating is for all of these crazy concepts: the cartel, super science, Genie and Roy, the woman and her brother, who make their way into Bruce's life pretty intimately for a short period of time, the thing that comes out of this and sticks as part of the mythos, Henri Ducard. This is the first appearance of Ducard. Huh. Yep, Ducard was created for this story and has become a central figure in the pre-Batman life of Bruce Wayne since. So it, it's... Say whatever else you can you know, about this story. It introduced a really important character to the mythos. Uh... When's our first story with Ghostmaker and Ducard? Oh, that that's gotta happen. <laughs> that's really gotta at some point. They, they yeah. Oh boy, I don't know if they hate each other or be, be best friends, but they, they, yeah, there's gotta be a Ghostmaker Ducard story somewhere down the line. Uh. 
we've occasionally had stories that have, have made me feel this way, but this is one where it's like, I don't exactly know where to start with this because of just how much is going on. I'll say this at the outset. I like this as a detective comic story because there is a mystery here. There is something that has to be unraveled. So whatever else you want to say about it, it's at least got that going for it. And there are numerous times throughout the story where Bruce is piecing things together, where he has these moments of deduction and intuition, where he figures out how to find the mysterious Dr. Harbinger after he's hopped bodies, how he deduces the fact that Harbinger is still alive after his body is found dead, about him figuring out what that Wayne Tech is somehow involved in the creation of this whole bone crusher technology. There is something for Bruce to figure out. And in a deduction of its own, throughout this story, it is entirely clear that Jim Gordon has long ago figured out that Batman is Bruce Wayne and has just never said it because he wants to leave Bruce his anonymity. Oh yeah, and but Gordon has this great moment where he says, look, if it comes between you and prison, uh, I'm going to give up the goods. Uh, you're not going to go to prison. Bruce's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, oh Bruce, you, you, at that point you should have just, should have just said, okay Jim, I'll level with you. Because Jim has obviously figured this out. Man's not stupid. No. And you have the whole plot with Jeannie and Roy. And I wish that we had had more character development on both of them. Jeannie's really just sort of an ingenue. She doesn't, you know, she shows up and Bruce Wayne helps her and she gets all moony-eyed for Bruce Wayne and he takes in her and her brother and then when he gets injured because yes, about halfway through here he's shot and spends the last story in a wheelchair. It's like, oh wait, hey, I've seen this. I, I do like that at one point there's a line about how the Batcave isn't wheelchair accessible but he doesn't seem to have that problem in Nightfall so at least he learned a lesson <laughs> here. And, and there's this... Like, there's this weird extra layer with Jeannie and Roy. It's, it's not that, like, she shows up in Gotham looking for her brother. She shows up in Gotham looking for her long-lost brother. Like, they were separated as kids, and I'm like, man, you were giving me so much backstory and characters that ultimately are not going to matter a whole lot. Yeah, you know that these are two characters that are here for this story. They aren't going to be central characters, and... Maybe if Ham had left Jeannie in Gotham. But no, at the end, when Roy dies standing in for Bruce, because yes, there's a stand, a blonde guy standing in for Batman. He tells her the whole thing. And she's like, I'll keep your, key, your secret. Go to hell. And just leave. So we spent a lot of time with these two characters for not much effect. And, okay, the dream that Bruce keeps having that the, the Waynes are being killed by a deformed Batman with a gun. It's like, okay, this is obviously dream symbolism of Batman is what kills Bruce Wayne's happiness. Fair. If you wanted Jeannie to be 
you know, the potential for a love that could make him whole and full and better. We needed to get more of a feeling for that and for her and for his feelings for her. Because you get her with a basically a schoolgirl crush, but we never see Bruce really caring about her any more than he'd care about anybody. He finds someone who understands grief and loss, maybe, on some sort of level, but that's that's as far as their relationship goes. Yeah, and Roy is just there as, you know, his things, Roy's, you know, in pretty good shape and had had one of these biochips implanted in him that Project Sabat, the bone crusher project, had been putting in people. So Bruce is able to use the technology to basically take over Roy's body and use him as a stand-in Batman while he is recovering. Until he dies. Oh, does he ever die. Whoops. And, they, I mean, there's a whole line, but, you know, the people who've, he's lost. Jason Todd. Roy Kane. Yes, he's a Kane. And it's like, oh, if we really... Like, you feel bad when Roy dies, because Roy was a good guy. But, again, it's not a huge emotional punch, because Roy is a plot device. Roy is there because... They needed somebody to have some knowledge of Project Sabat that he could give to Bruce and somebody who would stand in as Batman. With all those pages, you'd think we could have spent a little more time on some of those characters and a little less time on the eight million other plots and the, the homeless guys of Gotham. There's like, okay... Yeah, one of them winds up being the body that Dr. Harbinger jumps into. But did we really need to know about T-Bone and his pal? No, and this does not do a good job of sticking to the, the Ghostbusters rule in that it just introduces you know one fantastic, unbelievable thing and leaves the rest of the universe alone. It's like, in this book, not only do we have this crazy sound technology, not only do we have this brain-switching uh, technology... But our chief baddie here, Harbinger, he goes around with like this technology that lets him basically control other people by the sound of his voice. Like he tells them, oh, you will forget everything. Uh, oh, you will think uh, you're five years old. Oh, you will not be able to tell a lie. Like it's it's mesmerism, hypnotism, you know, whatever. And it's like, uh, you got to be a little bit more grounded with some of this stuff. And we could have cut out... Uh, all of that mind control Jedi stuff. He could have jumped into one of the bone crushers to begin with and going around just killing people with his bare hands to retrieve the technology. I guess, I mean, Ham was having fun with the scientific nature of the whammy. <laughs> but it wasn't... It was just more padding. Every character in this book, other than Bruce could have used more motivation. Absolutely. Harbinger, I mean, yes. I mean, you completely understand, okay, Harbinger was suffering from a degenerative neurological disease. He was confined to a wheelchair and could barely move. So, yes, I can understand why he wants to develop the technology to hop into other bodies. But that doesn't necessarily make him evil. I mean, it does when he's taking bodies without... The consent of the body, 
but I would have liked more about his descent into crapulence. And I, again, more of Jeannie and more of Roy. More about the cartel, the car- this shady government organization. They are the most straw man shady government organization out there. There's no fleshing out of what their agenda is other than we're going to make America better by doing shady shit. Oh, and then we need to call in uh, Descartes to do some stuff for us. Right. And Descartes is there just like, and they will pay me too. Boy, he has a a pretty uh, stereotypical French accent, by the way, throughout this, which I'm glad that they didn't keep when he you know shows up later but there's lots of messieurs and almost Claremontian accents within this but they, they call him in because of some connection between him and Bruce with and all we see various other members of the Batman training committee and it's just a lot of material we didn't need to see the other two martial arts masters that Bruce trained with. Oh, oh, and we have to get into Bruce's past and training because uh, he's arrested on suspicion of being a communist spy. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't have been for illegal experimentation or anything. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is 89. The, the Cold War is pretty waning at this point. It seems a little late for some Red Dawn in here. It's never... Uh... Not too late for Red Dawn, that. Alright. And then, in the end, by the way, the battle between, eventually, Harbinger in a bone crusher body and Roy is on an elevated train. Just like the end of Nightfall. Listen, do I think Doug Mensch read this story and decided to rip off beats point for point? No. Do I think it's kind of hilarious that they're similar? Yes. Of course, this ends much more poorly for everyone involved than Bane's and Jean-Paul's battle there. Because everybody dies. And there are strikingly few consequences for someone dying in the Batsuit. Yeah! I mean, this story is clearly in continuity in some ways. Because, I mean, there's talk of Jason Todd's death. But just because it's in continuity doesn't mean it's anybody ever remembers it happened. Oh, some Batman died at some point. At least at the end of uh, Where Were You the Night Batman Died, you get an explanation as to Batman's corpse there. Like, there's an understanding of who this guy was. Here it's just like, random guy in a Batman costume. I guess they could have, you know, explained it as, well, Batman had gone missing, so someone decided to take his place, and, well, he was clearly not very good at it, because he did. He did. Say you he did. And the very end of this story, when Bruce reconciles with the dream version of Batman, reminds me in some ways of Ego. Because the end of Ego is, you know, Batman, Bruce Wayne, sort of reconciling with Batman. But there, it's because he really believes the world needs Batman. And Bruce Wayne is needed to balance out the vengeful urge of Batman. Here, it's, well, 
I can never get justice because if I get justice, I'll be happy. Justice can never look on me because just because if justice looked upon Bruce Wayne, he would get his happiness. So justice cannot see him. Justice is blind. Isn't that something to go through all of these pages and then to finally get the fucking title on like the last page of the book? Yeah, and it's again that that ending. I mean, you see him walking off hand in hand, Batman and little Bruce Wayne, but ego felt like that was a choice that Bruce is making a heroic sacrifice here it feels almost fatalistic like well I guess this is what I have to do so I might as well embrace the demonic bat thing in my head keep fucking this chicken yep it's what separates this from something like ego that that core of hope versus this core of sort of we have to do this because it's what we do. Yeah, there, this is not a very hopeful story. No. Because Roy's death feels so hollow. It is, oh, well, he knew what we were doing. As if. He's a guy who's, who's lost his memory, uh, who is taken in by Bruce Wayne, and you know he finds out that Bruce Wayne's Batman, and Bruce is like, hey, uh, we need to do this thing, just help me out. And he's like, well, sure. I mean, it doesn't feel very consensual and it doesn't feel like some kind of noble sacrifice it just feels like a tragedy that nobody aside from his sister who doesn't again have a real connection with him it just feels ignored kind of by, by everybody else there's a reason why this is not held up in the canon I mean Lord knows we've read way worse stories oh of course but it's a writer who'd never gotten the chance to write a comic before, trying to do a bunch of big crazy things while trying to tell a story that is portentous and serious that winds up ringing a bit hollow. And he's a screenwriter, so I think in some ways, if you had given the same dialogue between Bruce and Jeannie to actors, it had strong actors in those roles it might have worked better because they would have been bringing levels to that. But as good an artist as Dennis Cowan is, and I love Dennis Cowan, I, I'm trying to think how much other Batman Cowan has done. He's done others, and we'll get to other stuff. But I mean, he's best known for, A, co-creating like much of Milestone, and for his long run on The Question with Denny O'Neill. Great series. But as good in, as acting as still art can do, the acting on page can't make dialogue sing that's perfectly fine dialogue, but doesn't carry a ton of weight. Then again, you can give terrible dialogue and it can be given to terrible actors and you can understand why sand is so coarse. Ah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, the, the dialogue has some issues. I think the pacing has some problems. This The climax here comes and goes so quickly. Jeannie should have had more time with Bruce at the end. More time to say, thanks for fucking me over, man. Yeah. I would have liked Bruce to try to offer her more and sure being like, no! You can't buy my happiness. My brother is dead, who I just reconnected with because of you, asshole. I don't know how much better Ham's pacing was with 89. We'll have to see again when we read it in one sitting 
when there aren't six months in between issues. He's got better ideas in 89, I'll say that. Less fantastical ideas. Yeah, yeah, more grounded in reality. Politics, ambition, loss. There's definitely pacing issues, though, in that, too, because you get the bit at the end where it's like, I have all these documents that will prove... Like, couldn't have mentioned all the documents that would let him control all the crooked cops and politicians in Gotham three issues ago? <laughs> it's going to be really wild to throw that in in issue six of six. But that's for a discussion when we get to 89. One day. So I think it's time. It's time to put Detective Comics 598 to 600 Blind Justice on the big board! So we are, we're, this is the lowest of the three tonight. You know, I did read and enjoy this. Oh, I, yes. Oh, just because it's the lowest of the three does not mean it's low. Oh, I I just, I wanted to be clear. Yeah. But yeah, upon reflection, thinking about it, I, I do think it, it is way too long. It is a little too silly. It's, it's silly in the wrong spots and, uh, and dark, or not dark enough in some spots. It's, it's a bit everywhere. But um, the core, I think, is, is not that bad. No. It doesn't quite hit the halfway point of the list, but it's not much lower than the halfway point of the list. I'm looking mid-80s, mid to low 80s. God, how are super heavy... And Batman, Judge Dredd, Judgment on Gotham, right next to each other. That's ridiculous. Yeah. It's super heavy. Again, we, you know, 44. And the Alfred pain, Alfred's uh, pain at having to give up his son uh, is really... That one gets you. This is not better than Batman, Judge Dredd. Batman, Judge Dredd is so much friggin' wild fun. That one, Super Heavy might be in the right place. Batman's Judge Dredd probably deserves to be a little higher. I think when we get to episode 100, we're going to, without at all, once again, stealing something from Battle of the Atom, which we've never stolen something from before. Totally unrelated concept. Different idea. We might each have to pick two stories that we feel are ranked in the wrong place when we hit an anniversary episode, like 100, and renegotiate a couple of them. And I think that one, I think we would both agree that Judgment on Gotham need, needs to move up a little. We still, though, have to do uh, three new stories, because I don't want this math to change. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely not. <laughs> no, no, that is an extra long episode 100, where we do our standard thing, and then we add on an additional 20 minutes where we move stuff around. Excellent. Yeah, no, Excellent. No, we have to keep this evenly divisible. Again... Obsessive compulsive DBA. I, oh. I, I I can't. I would lose my my, my oh. mind. Oh, absolutely. I would I would fight you to the death before I change the number of uh, stories we rank in an episode. Nope. It's three. It yes. is three stories every episode. Plus anything ancillary that we're gonna do. I I, I might have to start coming up here every fifty episodes. This might be what we do now. I, I'd be you know or. Maybe I come down to you. Hey! We can do that too. Spirit Airlines. Real cheap flights from Nashville to New Jersey. And I have yet to check Tennessee or Alabama or any of the states around there off on my states I need to go to a comic shop in. Hey! Because I'm trying trying to get, you know, all 50 someday and have been to a comic shop in all 50. I'm at 
15-ish at this point. Yeah, that's pretty good. Most of the East Coast. Most of the East Coast. I still need the Carolinas and, like, very northern New England. Like, Maine. From, but everything from Boston down to right above the Carolinas, I've got. And I've got Georgia and Florida, too. But back to what we're actually supposed to be discussing right now. Uh, so, I think... I can't put this above Judgment on Gotham. No. Where Judgment on Gotham currently stands. I think Judgment on Gotham probably deserves to be in the mid to low 70s, not the mid, the upper 80s, but we'll, we'll get there. Still, this would probably go down there. What? So the next one below that is The Misfits. The Alan Grant, Tim Sale... Catman Chancer story introduces a villain who also only appears in the one three issue story but that tells a more satisfying story over three issues or at least a more concise story it's not quite as all over the place as this is no and and this thing does suffer for having so many pages yeah I can understand wanting that Detective Comics 600 to be giant, but the 598 is is so puzzling. Yeah. I can't figure out why that one was so big. Like, it's not when 89 the movie is coming out. Right. We're just, this, if the cover dates are March, April, and May, this is January, February, and March. So 89 is, by the end, still three or four months away. I can't remember if it was June or July of that year. And maybe you bring him on and he wants to do like a longer arc or a mini series and this is ultimately where you cram him in. I mean, like it's it's weird to try to figure out like what kind of what thing necessitated two giants and then a regular sized issue in the middle. Yeah. Uh, June 23rd, by the way, just looking at it. Summer blockbuster. Summer blockbuster. Again, possibly that they thought they were going to give it more issues, and then it was like, oh, wait, we want to get it in 600, so we're going to just sort of sandwich some stuff and cut it up in a certain way. Oh, you aren't good at hitting your deadlines. Oh, all right. All right, so it's definitely not above Misfits. I think it is definitely above Injustice at 87. I think it's right above Injustice at 87. The, I mean, it beats Injustice just for the fact that the art is consistent and good throughout yeah and while injustice probably tells its story a little more consistently injustice still has those kind of weird chapters where it's like let's just pull back from the narrative for a minute and give you a story about what the flash is thinking <laughs> i was like yes it's important to know what the flash is thinking but did we need to interrupt the flow of the story for 12 pages of barry allen and his doubt time machine Go back, stop 9-11. That's, that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, Kennedy. Uh, number three, I don't know. I could think of something. Uh, in the top 100, maybe I go back and tell DC to, to better edit Injustice. Because, look, if you haven't read it, I'm telling you, there are moments where the art is just, I keep saying this, it's so bad. It's unbelievably bad. It is Unbelievably bad. Not 
good at all. No. So that makes this the new 87, right above Injustice Volume 1. And hey, look at that. 150 stories, 50 episodes. Woo! We did it! Here's the 50 more. But that is it for this week. Next week, Josh Reel is back for three stories, teaming up Batman and Green Arrow. Uh, we'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, conduit of outdated joke names. Jim, come on. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartball. Love you, sweetheart! Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Christian Smith, and John Wickham for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music Flash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLess1013. And I'm at Will Nevin, and I'm going to go crash on Matt's couch. Good night, New Jersey! And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of New Bat Books, or my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.